a young woman vanishes in the night. Jenny King was 22 years of age. Very attractive young woman. She was everyone's friend. A chance comment makes police focus on one man. She was chatting to her friend and she seemed to look in the other direction and say, oh, there goes my ex-psycho boyfriend. Detectives make an awful discovery, but found at a murder scene a set of keys. Surely these will identify their prime suspect. During the night time, we would send a team out to creep up to people's houses covertly and try the keys in the locks. The route to justice in this case takes some incredible twists. What are the chances? It's unbelievable. But you think that's unbelievable. You go on to another evening where we creep out in the middle of the night. And how can science track a killer? There's bramble seed, identical shoe and the den. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crime. Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from people who were involved. Victims, detectives, experts and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For more than 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest profile crime stories for television news. In this series, I'll be making a deep dive into each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to evade justice. If you want to see evidence from each inquiry, watch video clips, read more, or just get in touch, just subscribe at robertmurphy.substack.com. And please do rate and review our podcast. A word of warning, this is a crime podcast. There may be language and descriptions you might find affecting. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is called Unlocking the Murder of Jenny King. It's October 1998. We're in a district of Bristol in the southwest of England. It's called Kingswood, about four miles east of the historic city centre. This is middle class outskirts. Kingswood has a high street with cafes and stores. There's a small shopping mall. In there is a small nightclub. The club is the kind of place where people in the neighbourhood go. You wouldn't come here from another part of Bristol necessarily. The clientele is mostly teenagers and 20-somethings from Kingswood or nearby villages. While these young things were out listening to dance music or Britpop, which was still a big deal, a few miles away, a police officer was on a weekend shift. My name is Gary Mason. Back in 1998, I was a detective sergeant based at Staple Hill um, Police Station on a CID. Among the crowds of young people in Kingswood and Bristol was a young, pretty office worker. Jenny King was 22 years of age. Very attractive young woman. She worked for Coca-Cola and she worked in reception. And the reason she worked in reception is because of her general bubbly nature. She was everyone's friend. Everyone liked her. She would listen to you. And she had a job. She had a boyfriend. 
Um, the boyfriend that she was with at the time, she'd only been with for a few months, but they were getting on well and talking about plans for the future. I'm looking at a picture of Jenny. She seems the kind of girl you'd love to have living next door or you hope your son brings home as a girlfriend. She has a really kind face, smiling. She has long brown hair. She looks just lovely. In one photo, she's with her boyfriend, Stephen Daly. He's taller, again looks very pleasant. He has blonde hair combed back, an earring in his left ear, a denim jacket, and they look really relaxed and happy together. And he was fitting into her close family unit. Jenny lived at home with her parents. She had a 12-year-old sister, and she had a brother who was three years older than her. But on the night in question, her parents... That's Ray and Margaret. They had taken the 12-year-old with them and gone to Tenby to have a long weekend away, leaving Jenny and her brother um, at home. But they knew that Jenny, and they'd agreed that Jenny could invite her boyfriend, Stephen Daly, round to her house and spend the night with her. The night in question, October the 29th, 1998. Stephen Daly and Jenny had plans to not go out together. They had separate groups of friends. Stephen would see his. Jenny had a friend she met going to a bar in the centre of Bristol, about four miles away. Around 11 o'clock, her friend parted to go back to her home and Jenny decided to travel back to the Kingswood area and go to Chaser's nightclub. Chaser's nightclub is fairly small. I think on the night in question, it had somewhere in the region of 400 or more people. And um, it's a place she'd been to quite often. She knew it, she liked the atmosphere. She knew when she went there, even though she arrived on her own, and we eventually saw her arriving on the CCTV um, around 11, 11.30. And as she goes in, she goes in alone, but she knew she was going to meet lots of friends in there. And in fact, even her brother was in there. She didn't spend the evening with him, but she met him every now and then and had a quick chat, making sure everyone was happy. This was a local crowd from this suburb. Jenny was popular and knew lots of people here. Jenny met a friend, and speaking to each other over the loud music, Jenny glanced across the dance floor and said something which would later become one of the inquiry's biggest leads. At one point, she was chatting to her friend, drinking, and she seemed to look in the other direction and say, oh, there goes my ex-psycho boyfriend. Her friend looked across and couldn't see who she was talking about and didn't know who the ex-psycho boyfriend might be but it was a comment that was made and later made to the police that meant it was a line of investigation that had to be pursued. She bumped into her brother and her brother you know he had her um, best interests at heart her safety at heart as well what happened with Andrew? Well her brother who she met several times but towards the end of the evening her brother saw his sister she was fine she was quite happy she wasn't obviously drunk but he did ask her whether she had any money to get home by taxi she only had loose change he said so he gave her a fiver that was probably only about 10 minutes before she was due to leave what 
also she had to go and collect a coat and I say her coat it was actually her brother's leather jacket she was wearing her brother's jacket that night something she often did she liked it she liked the style although it looked a bit big on her um, she wore it quite often and she's seen at 10 past two leaving chasers on her own no one following her and heading towards the high street. And that was on CCTV, wasn't it? That was on Chaser CCTV. They had quite good CCTV. That's why we were able to pick her up going in and pick her up coming out. The CCTV that we had only showed her leaving Kings, the Chasers in Kingswood, heading towards the high street. At the time it was reported to us, our thought was, did she get a taxi, which they used to queue up immediately on high street outside of Chasers? to get a taxi home and then something's happened? Or did she choose to walk home, which she would have gone onto the high street, turned left and head out towards Warnley? This was the last time Jenny King was seen alive, leaving Chaser's nightclub alone, no one following her. The psycho ex-boyfriend was still inside. Her brother Andrew was still inside. Her boyfriend Stephen Daly was returning to her parents' home in Crane Close in Kingswood from his night out with his friends. Stephen Daly had gone out and his plan was to go back to Crane Close and to spend the night with Jenny there. And he eventually arrived back at Crane Close at 17 minutes past two, um, expecting to see Jenny there or very shortly after he arrived. He had to let himself in with a key that had been concealed um, near the um, front door, but he got himself in the house and just waited for Jenny to come home. She didn't. But she didn't. This was completely out of character for Jenny. She was thoughtful, she was sensible, and now she was missing. Andrew came back from the club. He and Stephen wondered where Jenny was and assumed she'd come back in the early hours or she'd stayed out with a friend. The following morning, when Stephen Daly awoke, he found she still hadn't returned. He was worried but had to go to work. He had a job as a delivery driver. Throughout the day, he called Jenny's home and Andrew, and nothing. Andrew, meantime, was calling friends. Where was Jenny King? They were so concerned, they phoned Ray and Margaret, and it was agreed between them all that the police should be notified. And the police were told about 7pm that night. Jenny's family first alerted police on Saturday, October the 30th. Gary Mason, the weekend detective sergeant, got to hear of this the following morning. And good detectives know. They just seem to know when something's wrong. On the Sunday morning, I started work about eight o'clock. I got that feeling. Um, and as soon as I got that feeling, I thought, we will take this investigation on. I will take responsibility for the missing person inquiry. I will use detectives that are working that day. The case was described as a missing persons inquiry, but to Gary, it looked and felt like something more serious, darker. A lot of good policing is about being methodical, and Gary was methodical. If you don't do the basics, that's where mistakes are made. He and his team started trying to find out as much as possible about Jenny King. Speaking to all the family, we had family liaison officers identified to make all inquiries with Ray and Margaret and Andrew. Um, so they were allocated certain actions in relation to the family. What do we know about Jenny? What do we know about her history? What do we know about ex-boyfriends, for example, because of that comment? We knew we had a lot of people in chases. 
the only way we were going to find out who they were was to get the CCTV from Chasers. So we captured the CCTV and one of the early things we started to do was to create individual stills of every single person. How many were there? I think in excess of 400. So you can imagine with all these stills, we ended up eventually setting up a room where they were all on display and then we were calling people in to see who they could identify. And then that would lead to an inquiry to question that person. We had to identify who this ex-psycho boyfriend was and anyone else that she knew. We had to identify um, the route she may have taken home. They decided on a media strategy, including an appeal about taxi drivers. Had anyone seen a driver acting suspiciously? She was given £5 for a taxi. Did she take a taxi and a taxi driver abduct her? We didn't know at that point. The problem with that is as soon as you put something out about taxis, we had four or five hundred calls into the incident room where females had got a taxi in the past and the taxi driver behaved a little bit um, inappropriate. The taxi driver didn't seem to know where they were driving. So we had hundreds of messages about taxi drivers. Quickly, they decided to upgrade the inquiry using computers and they opened a large inquiry room in Kingswood. Gary took the role of receiver, which is an important but challenging post in any large inquiry. Every single piece of information that comes into the incident room comes to me first. So about every person in Chasers, about every taxi driver that was apparently dodgy came by you? Yeah, every person. And over the time of the investigation, it was put out that she may have screamed we had hundreds of reports of screams. Screams, even in Portsmouth, we had reported to us. It was horrendous. And one of the disadvantages of using the media is that the public gets so interested in an inquiry, particularly a pretty young woman walking home, disappears. The public are very interested and want to help. Dowsers... Peep fortune tellers, clairvoyants, we had, it's got to be 50 to 100 of those who would suggest where we might find the deceased. Um, they had held something over a map and it had reacted at a certain location suggesting we should go there. Now we couldn't ignore it, but it couldn't be a priority at that point. Two days had passed and still no Jenny. Gary Mason even took to the skies as part of the inquiry. We knew a probable route she would have walked home. I managed to go up in a helicopter because I knew the area and would direct the helicopter so we could see where the most likely places are that she may, if she fell over, be left. Because she hadn't necessarily at that stage been murdered. She could have fallen over going home and um, was in a garden and just not discovered. Back on the ground, detectives were looking at that comment Jenny had made to her friend. Who was the psycho ex-boyfriend? It wasn't long before police were given a name. We soon became aware of an ex-boyfriend that Jenny had called Mark Stone. Now, he was 
in a new relationship. But the reason when he broke up with Jenny, he couldn't seem to forget her. Um, he kept wanting to get back together. We didn't know from the family that he was ever described as a psycho because of his attitude towards her. But it was a thought that that could have been who she was referring to. So we went and we questioned him and he gave an alibi. He gave an alibi that his girlfriend was able to substantiate. But we did notice he had injuries, scratches, and he explained that he got them at work. Detectives went to Mark Stone's work and checked. There, in a health and safety book, was a report of his workplace injury. Simple explanation for his scratches. He hadn't been in a fight, he said, and his new girlfriend backed the claim. He was alibied, but an alibi is only as good, really, as the witness. Would a girlfriend tell lies for her boyfriend so he doesn't get arrested, doesn't get um, in any trouble? He was taken off the radar slightly, but he was always there in the background. As Mark Stone receded from the spotlight, another character emerged into it. This was someone Jenny King's friends told police about. Not quite an ex-boyfriend, but a man with an obsession. His obsession was Jenny King. His name was Ralph Flay. Now, he was a young man who lived on the route that Jenny would have walked home, assuming she walked. She would actually walk past his front door. So that's one of the reasons he was of interest. Now, he was someone who had some mental health issues, but he'd taken a liking to Jenny. Jenny had worked occasionally at a bar and he would go there and he would just pester a little bit. He would describe to his friends, Jenny's my girlfriend. And when I say pester her, it was buy her flowers that she didn't want and things like that. Nothing more than that, with nothing, nothing, that. nothing suggestive, buy... nothing... Nothing aggressive, nothing overly suggestive. He would always want to talk to her and he liked her company. But he was on the radar because of that. All we could do at that stage was to question his parents. He lived at home with his parents and his parents said as far as they knew, he was at home in bed, they were asleep so they couldn't say 100%, but as far as they were concerned, he was there when they went to bed and he was there when they woke up. And he wasn't someone who generally got up and wandered around. Jenny had vanished after leaving the nightclub overnight between Friday and Saturday. Now it was Tuesday. Specialist search teams were looking at every minute piece of scrubland and wasteland, hope fading with every hour which passed. Then a small team, a sergeant and five, concentrated on a small area earmarked for road development near a road called Firework Close. There, there is a copse, a copse, a small little wood. It was known locally as the den because kids used to go in there, smoke cigarettes, um, 
perhaps have a little kiss and cuddle, do things that youngsters do. One officer, Mark Thompson, walked into the den as part of a search and he came across the body of Jenny. Mark Thompson knew straight away this was Jenny King. He couldn't touch her. He couldn't contaminate the scene. It was clear Jenny was dead. It was a heartbreaking moment. The outcome seasoned detectives were expecting but hoping their worst expectations would not be realised. Small comfort was that they had found her. When her body was found, I, I had a mixed sort of feeling. On the one hand, um, I had been involved in cases where victims had been murdered and their bodies never found. And I know what that's like for a family. So in some ways, actually finding her, although it's horrendous for the family to know about, they've actually got some sort of answer. She's not missing anywhere else, suffering. The police in me sort of said, we might have opportunities now forensically. Now we've found Jenny reasonably soon after she was obviously killed. The forensic evidence could still be there. So the police side was hopeful that we might get somewhere. But the other side of me was devastated that she hadn't been found alive. The discovery of Jenny King was an appalling blow, her parents' worst nightmare realised. It had the dual effect on the team, both of affecting them while spurring them on to find Jenny's killer. And as bleak as it now sounds, having a murder scene gave Gary Mason and the team some leads, something to grasp hold of. They brought in the initial response team. The people that need to go to the crime scene are forensic scientists, scenes of crime officers... The pathologist. Initial examinations were made of the scene and of Jenny King. She was naked from the waist down. Jenny's trousers had been used by her killer as a murder weapon. They were around her neck. The cause of Jenny's death would later be ascertained as strangulation. Although she also had a heavy blow to her head. Scientists started trying to find out what they could about her murder and her murderer. Forensics would be key. The forensic scientists that went there made the decisions that before the body's moved, we must tape it. Now, taping it means just that, really. They have some special sellotape, extra big, but they dab the sellotape on various areas of the victim and the clothing. Once they've dabbed it, say, just on the sleeve, so they'll dab it on the sleeve. They will then seal it with a bit of acetate so that nothing that's been captured will be lost. And then they mark it up that it's come from the sleeve. But when doing it, bearing in mind, as I said, the abdomen was exposed, they noticed a faint, muddy sort of mark on Jenny's abdomen. And when you looked at it fairly closely, it had the outline of like a shoe impression, as if someone had trodden on her body. 
one clue just near Jenny's body stood out. The scene was meticulously searched and only a very short distance from where her feet had been. A little bit of loose change was found, 38 pence, but also two keys. The two keys were on separate little key rings, but linked together. And the important thing about these keys, they weren't rusty at all. They hadn't been there very long. Other things that were found, you know, discarded cans, drink cans and this sort of thing, any of those type of things found, and even a couple of knives, were all rusty. But these two keys were not rusty at all, and they were found so close to Jenny's feet. The set of keys was not Jenny's, detectives learnt. Could they belong to her killer? The lead detective took a policy decision to keep their existence quiet. Initially a decision was made that the keys would not be made public. But the way we thought we would use the keys, we would get duplicate keys cut ourselves, so we had a copy of those keys, and then a few of the people we were remotely concerned about, we decided during the night time, we would send a team out to creep up to people's houses. Covert. Covertly, and try the keys in the locks. So um, Mark Stone was one of these people. We obviously, we needed to um, eliminate him and not just rely upon the alibi. So their first suspect, the psycho ex-boyfriend Mark Stone. Remember, he had scratches explained away in a work health and safety book. He also had an alibi, but that was backed up only by his new girlfriend. He didn't appear on Chase's CCTV, but had he been out looking for Jenny King that night? The undercover team got their duplicate keys, waited for night and approached his home. We went up to his house a covert team, put the key in the front door, turned it, and the door opened. Now, I can only imagine what that made the officer doing it feel. He immediately shut the door quietly, contacted the investigating officer to say, what do you want us to do? This key fits the lock. And the instructions were, we're going, to get, we're going to come out and we're going to arrest him. And you can understand why that's the... It's a fairly easy decision to make. One of the keys found at the scene fits the front door of um, Mark's house. So he's arrested and taken to the police station. We then can openly try the keys in the lock. The back door doesn't fit the second key that we've got. We don't know um, what that might fit, but we have got one key fit in his front door lock. And what we do, we also seize at this point, as well as arresting him, we seize his front and back door locks to have them examined properly by um, locksmith experts. His girlfriend said that he, he was possessive. Uh, yeah, his girlfriend did describe him as a very possessive sort of person. He didn't... Perhaps he didn't trust her as much as you should trust 
a girlfriend. Um, but um, so he's he's now back at the police station and going to be interviewed. Police needed confirmation that the keys worked on Mark Stone's lock. So, as Gary said, they called a locksmith who they had on their books to double check in fast time. We wanted a quick check by a local locksmith, not a forensic one, but a local one who we actually use if ever we need to gain entry to premises or get keys cut for premises. And he comes out and he looks at the key to the front, the key that fitted the front door found from the den and also to look at Mark's front door lock. And he puts a statement on saying that key fits that lock, was made for that lock. Wow. So you, there you are. You've got the killer, haven't you? We've got the killer. He's interviewed and denies it totally. So only a short time after finding Jenny King, they found the killer, police think, and at police headquarters, the fact the key found at the murder scene worked on his front door was enough for him to be charged. The pressure from above was mounting for the lead detective, Bill Davis. But the expert interview teams he had in a room with Mark Stone had some big doubts about the prime suspect. When you interview someone, yes, you get, you get a feeling. Are they being evasive? Are they being as open as they can? Are they answering all your questions? But the two interviewing officers, who I knew they were both from Staple Hill where I worked very, very experienced, they came away from that interview and said, he's not our man. Headquarters management team were very, very keen on charging him on that evidence. Very brave decision by the SIO, Bill Davis, who, who said, well, I've just spoken to my interview team. They are not convinced he's our man. This was a big call. Bill Davis trusted their views and told headquarters, I am not charging this man at this stage. I'm bailing him until we get a forensic examination of those locks. And we can do more inquiries and find out where the other key might belong. The interview team said Mark Stone was not Jenny's killer. They could just feel it. It didn't add up. But what about the keys? Well, yes, one had opened the front door. A local locksmith said it was the right key. But then in came the forensic locksmith with a different opinion. He examined the key that fit the front door and he examined the lock of Mark's house and he said that key does not belong to that lock. But they worked. The key worked in the lock. The key did work and he explained that by using that key we had in effect picked the lock this was simply a stunning coincidence and dreadful luck for Mark Stone. The pattern of the keys found by Jenny was similar to the key needed to open Mark Stone's lock. The murderer's key was just a degree smaller. If it had been a little bit bigger, it wouldn't have worked at all. But as it was slightly smaller and a similar pattern, it effectively picked his old, cheap, rickety lock and made him, at least for a few hours, look like Jenny's killer. What are the chances are, though, that the key that you've got from the murder scene is so similar, so similar to the other lock? What are the chances? It's unbelievable. But you think that's unbelievable. You go on to another evening where we creep out in the middle of the night because we want to 
try that key in Rolf Flay's front door because we want to eliminate him. And we want to make sure that he's not the offender had he gone out at night and his parents not been aware. You'll recall from earlier that Ralph Flay was a man who used to spook Jenny. Her friends were so worried that they told the police about him. He was obsessed with Jenny King, they said, bought her flowers she didn't want, claimed she was his girlfriend, turned up at the bar where she sometimes worked. Like Mark Stone, he had an alibi, but that was just his parents saying he was in and asleep. Like Mark Stone, he hadn't been filmed on the CCTV going in or out of Chaser's nightclub. But he lived on Hill Street. This was on Jenny's route home from the club. She would have passed his front door. And that door became the target of the covert team who went out for a second night with a duplicate key under the cover of darkness, this time moving in on Ralph Flay's home. So we go out one night to try to key in that lock. And the officer goes up to the front door, puts the key in, turns it, and the door opens. You've got your killer again. You're back in that situation, you've got the killer again. What on earth is going on? A set of keys is found at a murder scene and they open the door to not one suspect, but two. Ralph Flay, Jenny King's admirer, was taken into custody and became the new prime suspect. But police had been learning from their lessons. This occasion we didn't bother using the local locksmith. We decided we'd do it right from the start with the forensic locksmith. Now, what we actually found, well, what he found in this occasion, he said, well, what has happened is the lock on the front door in Hill Street is a little bit like a hotel room door. So it's got a round circular handle with the key slot in the middle of the handle. And you put the key in, and as you turn the key, you turn in the handle, the whole lot. And because the door wasn't locked in the first place, all you've done, you've turned the key and turned the handle, and the door's opened. So you've had keys found at a murder scene, and they've worked in not one but two doors. But you found that's right, and neither belongs to the killer. In the second door, the key hadn't fit fitted at all, really. If you'd put a screwdriver in that lock and turned it, it would have turned the handle because the door wasn't locked, and the door would have opened. But we thought we had, on a second occasion, found a key that fit the lock of someone who was of interest to us. The keys continued being big clues, but at the same time, scientists were making other discoveries. The results of the tapings from Jenny's body were being produced by the scientist Claire Galbraith. And she noticed that there were quite a few green fibres, which she looked at very closely. She was able to identify the material. Where they were found on the clothing was also important. And a lot of the green fibres were actually found underneath Jenny's top. So they were unlikely to have got on there by brushing against someone in the nightclub. 
they're more likely to have got on there by someone wearing a green item of clothing, putting their arm, hand up inside Jenny's top. In desperation, they even looked at Jenny's brother, Andrew. Could the fibres have come from him? And we seized five shirts, believe it or not, green, from Andrew. But they were all eliminated as being the source of those green fibres. So you're looking for a man with a green top as well? We're looking for a man who, who has worn a green top at some point. And there was a very light impression in mud resembling a footprint on Jenny's chest. What could forensics do with that? They brought in an expert, Ian Steele Gray, to see what he could do with it. And he looked at it and was able, through lighting, to enhance the image. And he came up with quite a distinctive shoe pattern. Although, when they looked at their database for shoe patterns, they couldn't find a make that it was. So we knew what the pattern on the sole of the shoe of the offender was likely to be, but we didn't have a brand or make of shoe. So the killer had a green shirt, a distinctive type of shoe, and the keys. What about the keys? The lead detective, Bill Davis, decided to take a gamble. We had exhausted who we needed to eliminate before the fact that the keys were in the public domain. So Bill Davis made a decision that he was going to show the keys on television, through the media, to the public. Wasn't agreed by everyone. Um, Certain people at headquarters didn't think it was a good idea. The police always like to hold some things back so that when they arrest someone, that person will tell you something. For example, I lost my keys, which only the offender would know. But it was decided it was time to release the keys. 500 messages come in. I suggest that key looks like a key that fits a patio door. I've got a key similar to that. Have you thought about... And there was just hundreds of messages coming in about keys. But there was a time amongst those calls that we got a very important call. This one seemed to matter. It was a man who said his nephew lived in Kingswood and his nephew had been out that night and he'd lost a set of keys recently. Thing was, he'd called the Crime Stoppers hotline and hadn't left his name. Police didn't know who the uncle or the nephew were. We wanted more information, but it was anonymous. And all we could do was put out in the media, please, with the person who phoned in, phone back, phone the incident room. And eventually he did phone the incident room. They now had a point of contact with the uncle. The details were sketchy, but on this second call, the uncle said he had a nephew called Paul Hunt, a 20-year-old factory worker. Paul Hunt had told him that, told his uncle that he had lost his keys that night. Um, and had seen it on TV, and you know, it's not his keys, but I did lose my keys that night. And his uncle said, you need to tell the police, just so they can eliminate you. And he did persuade Paul to actually phone the police. And Paul did phone in, um, initially anonymously, and then he phoned in the incident room. 
But as a result of that phone call, team went up to Paul Hunt's home address. And we didn't do it covertly this time. We went straight to the address, knocked on the door, asked to see if the keys would fit because Paul Hunt was there and said, yes, I lost my keys that night. And the keys fitted the front door, but we had that before. But the other key fitted the back door. So he was arrested and we seized the front door and the back door locks of his house. This seemed different to the two previous arrests. Police had two keys on a ring, one opening the front door, one the back door. Surely this case could have no more coincidences. Initial intelligence showed little about Paul Hunt. He was a 20-year-old man who lived with his mother in Kingswood. He was a couple of years younger than Jenny. In fact, he'd even gone to the same primary school as her. There was no intelligence that he knew Jenny other than to see her in the distance. He was described as a normal boy next door, friendly but quiet. Apart from the keys, what else was in his house which might put him at the murder scene? We seized shirts and one shirt in particular, um, a Ralph Lauren shirt that was green for Paul Hunt's address. And we found on the floor by the front door, a pair of shoes. And when you looked at the sole, they seemed to match the, um, the shoe pattern. Paul Hunt was interviewed by police, but as often happens, was advised by his solicitor to make no comment. Eventually, he gave a prepared statement saying what he did and where he was on the night Jenny King was killed. He went out in the city centre, he said, only had a couple of pounds left, not enough for a taxi, so he walked home. He lost his keys and his mum had let him in. No mention of Jenny King, hadn't seen her, hadn't killed her. And police were wrong about the shoes as well, he said. The shoes they'd seized, well, he'd only had these a few days. The shoes he'd been wearing on that night, well, they didn't fit him properly. So his mother had taken them back to the shoe shop. And that had happened on the day after Jenny's murder, October 30th. She knew that they'd been hurting him. And when she'd taken them back, they had supplied her with an identical pair of shoes. And that's the one that we'd seized. And in fact, we were very grateful he told us that because we then went to the shop and they said, well, shoes that are returned, we keep for a short time and then we send back to the manufacturers to get money back off them if there's faults. He showed the officers the return box and there were a number of pairs of shoes in this returns box, which the manager said, oh, you're lucky they're still here, actually, because you know, we would normally have returned them by now because the box is uh, quite full and there were a pair of trucker shoes in there. The officer sees those shoes. But hang on, the police would need to prove these shoes in a returns bin in a shop were Paul Hunt's. They could have been any man's with a size nine foot. Again, the inquiry relied on science. Can we prove that this is the shoes that Paul Hunt's mum took back? They were examined and they contained a, um, a lot of mud on the bottom. Now, OK, everyone gets mud on their shoes from time to time. But if these were the shoes that he wore in the den 
and they were returned the following morning, or the morning that he attacked Jenny, then the chances are a lot of that mud could have come from the den because they've been nowhere since. So all of that mud was scraped off the soles of the shoes and supplied to a sedimentologist, a specialist. Now I'm going to come back to the soil in a bit because it's slightly mind-blowing, but stay with us on the shoes for a moment. The shoes themselves were examined by an expert at the lab, the one who had given us the pattern. And he was not only able to say the pattern is right, but there's a cut on the sole of the one that's recovered. And that cut can be seen on the foot impression on the body. Oh my God, wow. So there's a very good chance they could be the right shoes. We all get cuts on the soles of our shoes from the day in which we've got them. But they can be quite distinctive. The expert also looked inside the shoe to see how the owner's foot had rubbed. This matched perfectly with how Paul Hunt's feet, how the toes, had rubbed on other shoes he owned. His foot imprint was unique, like a fingerprint. What about the green fibres? Looking in Paul Hunt's house, detectives had come across a green Ralph Lauren shirt. Did that match with the tiny flecks found on Jenny King? They were identical fibres as far as the makeup of them, the material they're made up from. The dye was identical. So she was quite happy that the fibres found on Jenny's body could have come from that shirt. But Paul Hunt's owning a mass-produced green shirt, which matched, still didn't cut it. Detectives still had to have him wearing it on the night of Jenny's murder. They checked the security footage at the city centre nightclub he said he'd been in. He is seen on CCTV coming out of the club, alone. And you can tell on that CCTV that he is wearing that green Ralph Lauren shirt. The green shirt, the foot impression and the keys were all enough evidence for Paul Hunt to be charged with Jenny King's murder. The trial would take place many months in the future. In the meantime, detectives had to build the case against Paul Hunt, who was still denying he'd murdered Jenny. This is where the sedimentologist comes in. Police hired one to look at the soil scrapings from the shoes recovered from the shop's return box. The shoes Paul Hunt had been wearing on the night of Jenny's murder, they were a brand called Trucker. What the scientists discovered would blow the detectives' minds. Soil is soil, you might think. He compared the soil from in the den, outside the den, with the soil found on the shoes recovered from the trucker shoes. Within that soil, there were all sorts of alien objects. Microgastropod, I never even knew what that was, but it's like teeny minute shells, miniature snails, if you like. And they found identical one from the trucker shoes to the centre of the den. Droppings from worms, identical ones from the shoe to the den. There was bramble seed, identical shoe and the den. 
little teeny bits of paper which were blue and pink in a checkered sort of design, identical shoe and den. Orange rubbery material, identical shoe and den. When the scientist, a man called Professor Pai, compared this with the soil outside the den, and even though it was just a few metres away, the sediment makeup was completely different. It was just amazing the information that was coming out. Outside the den, you don't find these orange bits, you don't find this coloured paper. We don't actually find bramble seeds so much. So what Professor Pai was saying, these shoes have been inside that den close to where Jenny's body was found. Scientists looked at Paul Hunt's route home from the nightclub and could find no point where there was even a close match to the soil of the den. The forensics were looking good. But what about their suspect, this 20-year-old factory worker, Paul Hunt? A quiet, friendly man, neighbours said. But then detectives started finding out more. As you can imagine, we're looking at all sorts of intelligence um, that's come in in relation to Paul Hunt. Um, and some of it was quite disturbing. Um, there was um, indecency-related sort of um, incidents that he'd been involved in, little bits of aggression and violence he'd been involved in. Then one new line of inquiry exposed his dark double life. We had a look at phone billing. And we chose to look at a period of phone billing from March through to the November when he was arrested. And if I say the phone at his home address made nearly 4,700 calls in that time, you could see that's not normal. And we found out that the nature of the calls were heavy breathing, silent calls, just a couple comments, um, that weren't pleasant. Um, and the thing that was also startling, on the day that he left to go to McCluskey's, he'd made 40 calls before he went out that evening. That's the day Jenny died. That was the day that Jenny died. So you might think, what, what happened the next day then? No calls at all. And this was the first time there'd been no calls. And the day after that, and the day after that, no calls. And it wasn't until suddenly he started making calls again. That was saying to us something happened in his life because he'd been making up to 40, 50 calls a day constantly since March that suddenly something happened in his life that he stopped making calls. Like he murdered somebody. Like he murdered someone. Some of the calls went further and were outright menacing. If a woman picked up the phone, he would sometimes threaten to rape her. Prosecutors decided they couldn't use this evidence in the trial, which was now scheduled to take place in the year 2000. Back in those days, so-called bad character evidence couldn't be used. Although Gary and the team had what they thought was a solid case, Paul Hunt was still pleading not guilty. And with juries and trials, there is always a chance, always, that something can go wrong. You are concerned that... Is there anything the police have done that is going to cause this trial to collapse? And then you'd feel an awful lot of blame yourself. This was a case 
that was very much dependent on lots of bits of evidence, lots of circumstantial evidence. There was no witness to the actual crime. So it was dependent upon lots of expert witnesses, really. And you knew the defence. They had a very strong defence team. And you knew that they would have expert witnesses as well. They hadn't served any evidence on us from expert witnesses, but we knew that they would arrive. So, yeah, there was a little bit of concern. And there were murmurings in court that Paul Hunt's team had something big up their sleeves. We heard a rumour, and this was quite early on, that the defence had something that was going to blow the case and make the case fold. Now, that obviously made us concerned, because what could this be? And it's something that the defence have got, and they're not telling us about. Jenny King's family was there every day, watching from the public gallery, as expert after expert was brought forward to talk about green fibres, sedimentology, and patterns of keys and locks. So far, so good. But then the defence showed their hand. The defence solicitor's investigator came into court one day and said to me, the family of Hunt, they found another key. They're wondering if it could be the key that Paul thought he lost. So the keys you've got are not Paul's, in fact. Could we just try this in the lock? You'll remember that the locks to Paul Hunt's front and back doors had been seized. They were now in court in plastic evidence bags. Police had put replacement locks in Hunt's home. But somebody had apparently discovered a key. And when this was tried, it worked in both Hunt's old locks, which were now in court, and his replacement locks at home. They worked in both. What on earth was going on? They wanted to argue that they needed experts to look at and research how popular these keys are, etc. And the only way that they could do that was to call a halt to the trial and have a retrial. Um, how did you feel about that? Well, that was a horrendous thought. I mean, A, retrials are renowned for not being that successful because the defence have already heard all the evidence, they've heard the strengths and weaknesses of the police case. So, we didn't want that. The judge didn't want all that time wasted. So the judge said, well, we'll, come, we'll call a halt now, halfway through the day. We'll give the prosecution time to do more inquiries and see if that can satisfy the defence and we can avoid a retrial. Now, I was tense enough anyway, because I was due to give evidence the next day. I was on the witness list for the next day. But inquiries now needed to be made up in Leicester at manufacturers of the locks and the keys in question. And the only person who could really go with all the knowledge was myself and another officer. So we went together. We had a driver given to us who happened to be the chief's chauffeur so we didn't have to drive there and back. And we drove up to Leicester and, and went to this company that manufactured locks and keys. 
Now, a retrial would have been dreadful on so many levels. Firstly, for Jenny King's family, who had already waited more than a year for this trial. The sheer emotional roller coaster would have been awful for them. But also, the spot where Jenny King was found was due to be redeveloped into a ring road, and the builders couldn't start until the trial was over. Gary was trying to save the trial from collapsing. The forensic locksmith, John Crummock, was doing a good job, but this defence development had thrown dust up, sowed doubt. It was on a knife's edge. On his emergency trip to Leicester in the East Midlands, Gary discovered a fact about mass-produced locks which he hadn't known. This, and a prosecution concession, meant the judge was persuaded to keep things going. There are lots of different combinations of locks, but one thing they did say to me was, if you've got one company on a large building site making putting the locks and keys in all the doors, all the patio doors and all the front doors of those houses, it wouldn't be uncommon for the same lock to be in more than one house mm. on a big building site. He conceded a few points to the defence so that the trial could continue because we felt the case was strong enough. And if we had to concede that there were other keys and other locks that would fit that, so be it. But the other thing that concerned us, the lock that we'd seized, this replacement lock, the key now seemed to fit, we had examined by Mr Crummock. And the first thing he said was, this lock's been tampered with. It's not a brand new lock. You put a brand new lock in that. So, but the lock in Paul Hunt's home has been tampered with. It's been tampered with. Don't know by whom, haven't got a clue by whom, but it looked as though it had been tampered with, so it now fitted the, um, the key. It wouldn't necessarily have beforehand. He said, I don't know how they've, or what they've done, but there is evidence that the lock's been tampered with, been opened up. Paul Hunt's defence team had their own scientists who disagreed with the prosecution. Our sedimentologists um, had a hard time in the box because the defence had experts. They served pages and pages of material on our experts just minutes before he was going to give evidence. And he had to go through that quickly so that um, he could argue the point or say to us, oh, I've got it wrong. Their experts can disprove some of what I'm saying. In the end, he actually said to us, and it was incredible he managed to do it, but he said to us, the evidence they've given, given me all their data, helps support our case, don't worry about it. Eventually, after 12 days, the prosecution and defence cases were closed. The judge summed up, and it was over to the 12 men and women of the jury who would decide Paul Hunt's fate. After this long and complex case, it took them just five and a half hours to return with their verdict. The courtroom was very, very tense, obviously. And when the jury are asked about um, whether they've reached a verdict. That's it, where it sort of reaches it, its peak. And they came back with guilty. 
One thing that went through my mind was that's guilty without the jury knowing anything about all these phone calls, without the jury knowing anything about his history of um, inappropriate behaviour. The judge wanted to delay sentencing because the judge knew about this additional evidence of all the phone calls and everything else and wanted to listen to that um, before the judge decided upon sentencing. What do you think it meant for Ray and Margaret and Jenny's brother and sister? The trial process, they'd had to hear the evidence, unfortunately. They had to hear the state that their daughter was found. They had to hear the forensic evidence. So that was not easy for them. They now knew and were relieved that the person responsible had been found guilty. And they didn't have to wait too long to know that he'd been sentenced to quite a long term of imprisonment. Although he was given life, there was a recommendation and that recommendation would mean that he could come out on parole in the future. Afterwards, Jenny's father, Ray, said, Jenny has no future. He callously took that away. It is obvious to all who've been present at this trial that he is not just a murderous liar, but evil personified. According to the evidence, if it's to be believed, this is a person who, within 12 hours of murdering my daughter, was playing pool with his mate, and who, within 18 hours, was out on the town again. He's brought eternal shame on his family and tainted them and his friends with his web of deceit and lies. Hunt showed no remorse at the time. He has shown no remorse since. He has applied for parole. Jenny's family have objected to this application. It would have been easy for the senior investigating officer, the SIO, to have charged Mark Stone. This is a case which was solved by an open-mindedness to follow the science. It's an offence which led us off with keys fitting in wrong locks. Um, the coincidences that seemed to happen were unbelievable. But the SIO and the deputy SIO had such big decisions to make and they made the right decisions each time. If they made the wrong decision, well, we would have had the wrong person charged earlier on. If we'd had the wrong person charged, we may never have got the call coming in from Paul's uncle. Those decisions were very important decisions and they were made by very experienced officers and I'm glad they made those decisions. They weren't my decisions to make. I was just there having to deal with paperwork after paperwork. And then I had to put the case up as a case officer to go to trial. But it shows the importance of getting the calls right. It does show the importance of getting the calls right. And it shows to follow through forensics, even though it's going to cost more money, following it through to the nth degree because, I mean, I'd never heard of um, so much forensic sedimentology evidence that could prove not only had Paul been in the area, he'd been stood right next to Jenny. And that's what we were able to show. We have used pseudonyms with both Mark Stone and Ralph Flay. 
Gary Mason would later set up Avon and Somerset's Cold Case Unit, which had some incredible successes in bringing justice in unsolved inquiries. This included the 31-year-old unsolved murder of the teenager Melanie Road. This was one of Britain's biggest cold case inquiries, and it concluded in an emotional courtroom showdown, which I, as a journalist, saw play out. You can find out more about this case in the book I've written with the lead detective, Julie Mackay. It's called To Hunt a Killer. If you want to see evidence from this case, images or a video interview with Gary Mason, just follow Behind the Crimes at robertmurphy.substack.com. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy.